Before we get to our show, just a quick note. In a few weeks, we're going to be launching an exciting update from our team. We've taken your feedback and the feedback of our partners and friends on the ground, and we've returned to our principles and practices of peacemaking to make them even more precise, even more clear, and even more powerful than before. This December, we're launching a campaign to bring these new and improved principles and practices of peacemaking to you. We have some amazing stories we can't wait to share from our team and our network of the PPP in practice, building the world of mutual flourishing and systemic justice that we believe is possible if good people of goodwill come together and contend for the common good. Because we know this, hope is what you do. We can't just believe in peace. We have to practice peace. So this November and December, practice peace with us by supporting our work through financial giving and joining the movement of peacemakers who choose to practice peace every day. Stay tuned to learn more. Welcome to The Check-In. My name is David Catabaugh, and I'm your host. And I'm here with a small group today. We have Sarah. Where are you checking in from? Good morning. Checking in from Washington, D.C. Where are you checking in from, Jack? Good afternoon. I'm at my home in Java. We've been all over the U.S. and the world the past couple months, but I think for the first time in a while, our D.C. office is full. Everyone's here. It's great. Today is actually election day here in the States, uh, but we're actually not going to talk about the election going on in um, our own backyard. We want to talk about the election that happened this past week in Israel. Um, In fact, the citizens in Israel went to the polls for the fifth time in three years last week, voting in a new government that will likely be led by Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's longest running prime minister. Notably though, the new governing coalition will include the far-right religious Zionist party, providing a seat to Itamar Ben-Gavir, an ultra-nationalist religious Zionist who has called for the expulsion of Arabs who aren't loyal to the state of Israel and has been charged with inciting violence against Palestinian communities. The results are concerning for those of us working towards a future of mutual flourishing in Israel-Palestine. What will this mean for the future of peace, justice, and human rights in the region? Let's discuss. Jack, you are um, our expert here today. We have lots of questions for you, but I wanna start just with the basics. How did we get here to five elections in three years, nearly four, what brought us his fifth election and what's new about the results? Yeah, uh, lots of pressure being the in-house expert. Um, well, it's basically what brought us here is this is a virtual referendum on the Israeli political figure, Benjamin Netanyahu, who has been basically fighting tooth and claw to stay in power and gain immunity because he's facing uh, corruption charges. And Basically, the Israeli public has been 50% supporting him and 50% uh, that don't hate his guts, don't want to see him come back to power. Uh, And so we've gone to election after election where he's campaigning and he's got a real strong base. Um, And he also is relying on a strong um, base from other right-wing parties, not just his own. Um, So if we look at the number of voters and what they voted for this election, we see that there, I think, was a few thousand votes in between those that voted for the bloc 
that opposed Netanyahu and those that voted for Netanyahu's block. But ultimately, um, those votes were scattered in opposition to him, were scattered over several parties, um, some of which did not even make it into the to the Knesset. Can you clarify why that is? What like why why do some parties not get in the the Knesset? What's the rule there? So there's a threshold to entering the Knesset. It's a three point two five percent, which um, roughly comes out to about four seats out of 120 seats in the Israeli Knesset in the parliament. So basically, you have to receive four seats to enter the Knesset. If you receive any less, um, you don't make it in. The way the 3.25% though is calculated out of the percentage of voter turnout. What, what that means is if voter turnout is higher, that means that the number of actual votes that you need will go up. Um, and so that affects different voting blocks and different political parties differently. Um, in this election, there was a very high turnout amongst Jewish Israelis. And Jewish Israelis have, in the recent decades, moved further and further to the right. And so a majority of those votes were from right-wing political parties, meaning that a higher turnout in the Jewish Israeli sector meant that more votes towards right-wing political parties and this raised the threshold for the more the opposition parties left-wing parties and centrist parties um as well as well as um some of the palestinian citizen of israel parties very complicated all to say that you need four seats in order to make it into the knesset jack with those voting trends do you think that people kind of get tired of voting i mean we it feels like we vote a fair amount here between primaries and midterms and elections and primaries but five elections in three years is kind of unfathomable for us with our american system do you think that affects who decides to turn out for what elections absolutely um i'm actually surprised this was one of the highest voter turnouts in israeli history um, among the Israeli public. But going into the election, most pollsters um, actually said that they expect voter turnout amongst Palestinian citizens of Israel not to surpass 40%. Ultimately, though, it reached 55%. But the reason I mention that is because most Palestinians between these five elections ha have really become exhausted with not only going to elections, but going to elections not receiving anything or seeing different political figures that ultimately treat them and are acting in the same way when it comes to Palestinians at large and Palestinian citizens of Israel specifically. Um, and so you're absolutely right when it comes to, to, to my own community. There were a lot of people that were thinking of sitting this one out. Um, a lot of people did sit this one out. But ultimately, uh, some showed up in 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 the last minute um, and bumped that turnout to to about fifty five percent. So I want to come back to to that point and and also what this will mean for both Palestinian citizens of Israel and Palestinians living in the West Bank, East Jerusalem, the Gaza Strip. But uh, I want to first return to what you said earlier about how uh, in the past number of decades. Um, Israeli society has moved more rightward. 
um, and especially Israeli youth these days. I've seen statistic that says 70% of Israeli youth refer to themselves as right wing. How, how did, how did, what's part of those trends? What's behind them? And what does that even mean as far as right wing in the Israeli context? How, is it different than how we might understand it in the US? Can you clarify a little bit of even what that term means in Israel? So the right wing and the left wing in Israel really is decided on how you feel about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, where you stand on if uh, the Israeli government should be harder on quote-unquote security, be tougher with the Palestinians, and acquiesce more land in the West Bank. Um, and most youth in Israel have grown up in post-Second Intifada in very kind of violent times. They've also grown up during times where these more hawkish political figures um, like Netanyahu, Ariel Sharon, ha have come about and been able to really do as they please with a lot of American support. Um, and so that's emboldened a lot of young people to say, you know what, this is what works. We, you know, we shouldn't be shy about wanting our historical, ancient, biblical heartland. Um, we shouldn't be shy to the world. And here we are. We've, we've gotten support from the U.S. and others, and no one is doing anything about it. So um, I think, you know, I have a more biased uh, perspective on this, but I think that's ultimately what's emboldened a lot of young people to get behind these political figures um, and strengthen these political parties on the right. That makes a lot of sense, Jack. And I've been thinking about, too, you know, you mentioned this is the, the young generation came kind of of age post Second Intifada, but they're also the post Oslo peace process generation. And we've talked about that being kind of an utter failure from the start before. And today's conversation isn't really to dive into that. But I've been thinking a lot about, you know, people my age and the 10 years younger who now get to vote, who don't have personal experience or context with what a viable peace process looks like. And so to, to try and think about how different generations approach how they're making political calculations, if you don't remember anything other than the status quo of what's happening right now, it's really hard to think outside of that paradigm. And, you know, that's been something that I've thought a lot about in our context, in the Israeli context with Palestinian youth, too, that especially for folks who have been adults for more of this timeline, um, the youth coming of age just don't have that same lived memory. And that's something that I think is really important too when we talk about trends among youth and, and how among Israeli youth, they're, they're trending a little bit more right wing. For sure, I'd agree with that. And there's also a huge factor at play in the fact that the peace process failed and failed so miserably. Um, had it not been the case then, or if there were some wins on either side, then there there might have been some hope among that young population even if they hadn't lived it there would have been some some stories to tell from that time but um the only stories they'll hear even if they hadn't lived through it is that this didn't really work out i mean i wonder if that's also you know connected to prospects or for hope or even a sense of despair amongst palestinian youth in the west bank and the, you know, the rise in violence that has been happening, not only this year, but, you know, really for a long time, um, that has been the normal everyday life for Palestinians in the West Bank. And, you know, for, for most Palestinians there, there's, there's no longer this sense in we, you know, we want our future to be a two state solution like that. That's not really even what most Palestinians are, are calling for anymore. I wonder, I mean, how, how was that impacted or shaped 
perspectives amongst Palestinian youth and and what a, a vision for the future might hold. Yeah, I think m- most Palestinians, I mean, they live the reality on the ground that you that you've described, David. Um, and they they see more infrastructure, more tunnels being dug into mountains, and billions and trillions of dollars being spent on inside the West Bank and more settlements expanding. And so, at the same time, they see you know they see the occupation being more entrenched in order to manage that whole situation. And it's not that most Palestinians don't believe in a two-state it's or don't want a two-state, but they don't believe in a two-state solution. They don't see a, a scenario where most of this infrastructure, most of these hundreds and thousands of people are going to, to get up and go. Um, at the same time, I would say for the most part in the public, in the public um kind of rhetoric there there isn't much talk about what the alternative is there are people that will call for israel to come back and take back the keys to control over the west bank and gaza Um, but for the most part people have not given up the hope of sovereignty of of being able to to control their own lives Um, they just don't see that this formula that was set out you know, 30 years ago, it's going to happen anymore. And so we have to, um, so there, there's, a, there is a reaction of hopelessness and despair. Um, and there's, and there's been, you know, violence that's increasing also from the, from the Israeli side as, um, as, as part of that, it's the, the violence from, from the Palestinians is often highlighted at times of escalation, but there's a continuation of a military occupation, which means there is violence. Every, there has been violence every day, uh, every minute of uh, of these people's lives. Um, and then there's times of, of escalation of that violence. So I want to talk about what this election might mean for that future and, and what this might mean for escalating violence, particularly by understanding who this guy, Itamar Ben-Gavir, is. Uh, there's a lot of writing about him online these days. Lots of analysts are pointing out that this is uh, concerning. Who is Itamar Ben-Gavir? Why are folks so concerned about him being in a position to potentially have a seat in the government uh, and a powerful position at that? So Itamar Ben-Gavir is um, a very notorious figure and has been in Israeli politics for a couple of years now. Um but he's really been the top of the headline uh, during this past election, even election night, as polls were coming in and as numbers were coming in. They, the Israeli public really realized how many seats his uh, his party was receiving, and it became a, a top news issue. And Bankvir is um, this guy that is described as a a fascist by many people even in israel um a very insightful uh, in in terms of violence towards arabs has called for um, arabs and palestinians to be transferred um out of here and either they accept kind of jewish dominance or jewish supremacy or leave. Um, he's asked for Palestinians to um, be swear loyalty to the state of Israel, um, and he's had a history. I mean, there has been uh, newspaper articles and pictures of him 
with the emblem of uh, former Prime Minister Itzhak Rabin's Cadillac that, you know, as a youngster, he'd stolen his his Cadillac emblem off his car. Um, part of that youth that was really against Itzhak Rabin in the two-state solution early on in the 1990s, um, he's had a an Israeli terrorist picture up in his home um, up until recently. So a very problematic, very racist figure has come up um, to being the third strongest has is leading now the third strongest party in Israeli politics. Now, that's all very problematic and very concerning. What's more concerning, in my view, is that the State Department has come out and said, the U.S. State Department has come out and said, we will support the Israeli government no matter what it looks like and what the makeup of the Israeli government is. And so I think that's something to really discuss and think about because we know that that's not the case when it comes to other governments. Um, Just kind of the the first one that comes to mind is obviously the Palestinian government in 2005 and 2006 when there were elections. As soon as Hamas was voted into power, uh, fair and square, the American government and the Israeli government denounced uh, the elections and said, we will not recognize a government headed by Hamas. Um, So just kind of throwing that out there, because I think that's a huge statement to come out of the State Department uh, in the in the aftermath of these elections. I'm glad you landed there, Jack, because as I've been processing the election news and reading a lot of the analysis, I think that circles back to to not having context on the ground that leads towards any kind of hope for Palestinians. The U.S. and State Department line has historically been, you know, two state solution, no annexation, stop settlements, but haven't really done anything to actually keep that from happening. And Ben Gavir comes from a settlement. He is all about settlement expansion. He's actively part of and promoting and perpetuating that system that goes against kind of what the U.S. has said are their kind of lines in the sand that they don't want to have crossed in terms of being able to hypothetically reinstate a peace process. And those are all part of the things that we had talked about a little bit earlier in this conversation that are creating the conditions of continued occupation and structural systemic violence. I know those are big terms, but but are part of the violence that Palestinians experience on a daily basis, even if we don't always see it as violence. And so I've, I've really struggled with that this week, that by acknowledging a figure like Ben Gavir, who not just talks about policies, but personally embodies them, that the U.S. is supposedly against, it really feels like a step in the wrong direction of not just making progress, but holding kind of steadfast to what we've said we hypothetically, theoretically support. It is bleak, but um, that that seems like to be the, the direction we're going. There is slight hope. He's also a very controversial figure in Israeli society. Um, a lot of Israeli society and most people that live along the coast in Tel Aviv are really concerned and really scared of the rise of Ben Gvir here in Israel. Um, and so there's a lot of talk now, and that's where there's slight hope that Netanyahu will actually try to take away some of Ben Gvir's power um, and not give him the ministerial roles um, he seeks and Netanyahu has promised um, in order to kind of create a more stable government, in order to to unify um, the country around him and not create more divis- uh, division inside the country. 
I've also been seeing from some some commentators that you know Ben Gavir being in a ministerial role of overseeing internal security could really damage Israel's international reputation and could open up opportunity for really strong critiques. Um, you know, I was listening to a podcast with Farah Friedman, and she was describing uh, Ben Gavir's potential place in this government. I was just saying, like, the masks are off, like, there's no more hiding of kind of what's underneath the surface of how Israeli society feels about the question of Palestine and Palestinians. Um, and, you know, some people are saying maybe this could be a good thing in that it kind of opens people's eyes to seeing some of the deeper issues at play and and opening opportunities for, uh, for maybe, you know, like the U.S. no longer saying no matter who's in power, we're going to support you, carte blanche. Do you think that's possible? Do you think there's any, you know, hope for kind of like an international reckoning with Ben Gavir's rise? What, what's your take on that um, perspective? I think it's going to depend on American constituents and not necessarily American administrations and the political wings, um, because there has been plenty of, of violence, of problematic policies towards Palestinians, entrenching the occupation, expand, expanding settlements, working um to kind of kill the two-state solution so far, um, but there hasn't been any any reaction or any leverage used by the U.S. So it's really going to depend on more Americans knowing, sharing, uh, speaking out against this. That's what's going to create a change. Um, whether it's Bangvir is in power or has that ministerial role, or even if Netanyahu remains there and is is continuing the policies that he's been that he's been pushing for the past uh, couple decades, um, that's you know not to play that down just because we have a kind of a a worse uh, figure that's coming rising to the ranks. I like I appreciate where you landed that, Jack, because I think that's a, an important thing for us to hear and our listeners that we have a role here too you know it may not feel like we do and obviously we're not voting in israeli elections but we create space for our own communities our own you know elected officials to to ask more questions and kind of get to the deeper stories you know that that aren't often told about um that region and about what's going on so i think that's that's important for us to hear any other recommendations or actions that that you want our listeners to be to be doing thinking about um, talking about uh, in response to this election i would encourage um folks to to read up on local news uh to tune into places like haaret um, which is more uh, a left-wing israeli newspaper and see some of the articles and share and share you know some of that with their friends and communities um, and you'll see that a lot of Israelis also are not happy with the direction things are headed. Um, and I think that's not something that's that's often shared or, or, or seen in the U.S. Um, I'd also recommend that folks lift up and amplify the voices of Palestinians. In this latest rounds of violence and escalation, there's been over 100 Palestinians that have been killed. Um on my social media feed, there's been a, a number of very large kind of platforms, social media platforms that talk about these things, that report from the ground, um, because there isn't the 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 same kind of um, media outlet as Haaretz 
on the Palestinian side, yet they've been silenced by a lot of uh, their pages have been shut down and they've been silenced. So I think it's also important for for folks as they're sifting through different perspectives and the news. And once they land on something that they feel does represent what the truth is that's coming out of here to, to amplify that. Well, it's a good word for us to end on, Jack. And our team will be releasing a more comprehensive analysis of the results and other events happening in Israel-Palestine this week in our bi-weekly newsletter. So stay tuned for that. We'll post about that on social media and include a link in our show notes to that as well. Um, but folks, share those articles, read that, share with friends, send it to folks you know who you want to engage on this issue. In the meantime, if you're enjoying the show, as always, consider becoming a monthly donor to tell us. All of this happens because of the generosity of our partners and donors. Um, and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It does really help us get discovered by new communities. And we want more and more people to hear uh, what Jack has to say, what Sarah has to say, what the folks uh, on our team and, and the folks in the pro, 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 pro Israeli, pro Palestinian, pro peace community are saying. Um, because ultimately, right, these can, these results are concerning. Um, they definitely don't move us in the right direction. And so it's time for us to, to stand up, um, make our voice heard, right, um, for ultimately a future for Israelis and Palestinians to live in security, dignity, and freedom. So folks, thanks for listening. Stay tuned for more, and we'll see you next time.